you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined momentarily by a long overdue guest. That is the great Ron Coleman. Ron is a partner of the Dylan Long Group, host of the Culmination podcast and a prolific tweeter and just all around great guy. So we look forward to a wide ranging conversation with Ron. I'm sure we're going to get into the RNC race that recently happens. We'll get into the Israeli judicial reform debate and probably some other fun topics if I had to guess as well. There are two things that I want to talk about, though, with you before we get to bring on Ron Coleman here momentarily. One is the obvious question of the news cycle right now, which is what the hell is going on? with these literally UFOs and the term UFO, you know, that obviously connotes imagery of these alien spacecrafts and Roswell, New Mexico and Area 51. But the term UFO actually has a technical definition. It literally means what it says. It says unidentified flying objects. So there has now been a spate of UFOs. There, of course, was the Chinese spy balloon. That was a confirmed surveillance spy balloon. We discussed this on the show Last week, this spy balloon traversed across the entire North American continent. It was not shot down until it was off the coast of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, in utterly inexplicable fashion from a feckless commander-in-chief, President Joe Biden. I, I, to this day, I have no idea. I really have no idea whatsoever why this thing was not shot down at an earlier juncture. Of course, we would not have even known about this spy balloon had the good denizens of the state of Montana, I think it was, Montana or Wyoming, I believe it was first in Montana, where the local denizens told the, their local newspaper about it. They literally saw it with the naked eye, if I am not mistaken there. And the military elites at that time basically told the American people that they did not shoot this down immediately in Montana because they were afraid of debris falling to the ground. To which I say, have the people saying this ever been to that part of the country? Have they been to Montana, Idaho, Wyoming? I mean, mean, what the hell were you afraid of? Were you afraid of hitting a bison? Were Were you afraid of hitting like a glacier in Glacier National Park or a nice prairie there in eastern Montana, western North Dakota, an oil field? I mean, give me a break. This is just straight up lying. I hate to say it like that. I mean, you know, I have news for you guys. If you're not sufficiently jaded, that the federal government tends to lie to you sometimes. And this is a clear and obvious example of that. But finally, the, the Chinese spy balloon was shot down, of course, of, uh, off the coast of, of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I wrote my recent column that you can find at Newsweek.com slash opinion. I wrote my, my most recent syndicated column on reassessing U.S.-China relations in the aftermath of that spy balloon. But the point is, there have now been three Three additional UFOs. One was shot down by an F-22 in, off the northern coast of Alaska, the northernmost point in the United States. A second then was in the Canadian Yukon Territory, not terribly far from Alaska. And the fourth, which was just over this past weekend, was shot down over Lake Huron, one of the Great Lakes near the U.S. state of Michigan. And at least as of the time that I am recording this, 
subject to information that may or may not come out over the next 12 to 24 hours or so, we have no freaking idea what the hell is going on, which is inexcusable for a million different reasons. If the military is scrambling jets at this point to frantically shoot crap out of the sky and the president of the United States is on speed dial from military elites about this, then it is absurd that we are not being told anything again as of the time that we are recording this. I really hope that there is going to be more information that comes out soon. In a situation like this, what I personally do is I think about the principle known as Occam's razor, which is the simplest explanation is oftentimes the best. To me, the simplest explanation is one of two things. The first possibility is that these are just additional Chinese objects. China obviously smells blood in the water. They see an incredibly weak president who is distracted with this intra-Slavic, context, this intra-Slavic conflict in, in eastern Ukraine. And he's basically just trying to pick on a, an incredibly weak and ineffectual president in Joe Biden. That is one possibility. The other possibility, which I've seen some people speculate as well, is the possibility that NORAD, which is, you know, kind of the military radar system for tracking these objects, has basically just expanded their filters. They've basically just casted a wider net of possibilities of more objects and that it is now picking up more objects that they otherwise would not have been able to track. That seems plausible, I guess. But the timing is more than a little suspicious, given that we know for certain that that first balloon that was, again, finally shot down off the South Carolina coast, we know that that was a a nefarious and deeply pernicious surveillance balloon that has sent back plenty of intelligence gathering already to the Politburo in Beijing. So sign me up for probably the former explanation that I do not think this is as innocent, if I had to guess, just expanding kind of the search algorithms. But the key takeaway here is... The government lied to us. The government literally lied to us when it came to its purported or alleged inability to shoot down the surveillance balloon over the plains or the glaciers of Montana. And I have no reason whatsoever that they are going to be candid with us as of now. And the mere fact that as of we're recording this, we have no idea what the hell these three objects are to me is just utterly baffling. Terrible, terrible stuff. And I I would encourage all of you to continue to follow this story very closely over the next week or two. The only other topic that I want to hit on here before we, we bring on Ron Coleman. So this is. I saw here because it's a little personal to me because I you know I have some good personal friends involved here. This is a, this is an issue that has really been proliferating on Twitter, on the Twitter sphere uh, over the past less than a week or so, at least since last Wednesday, if I have the date correctly here. And there is a big fight going on at one of the rights most important organizations from my perspective, which is Project Veritas. Project Veritas was, of course, founded by James O'Keefe. And they are recently back on Twitter. Both Project Veritas itself and James were recently back on Twitter as of Elon Musk taking over Twitter. They had this huge coup against Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company recently, and they were they really appear to be kind of back in full form until news broke of this very bitter dispute between the board and James O'Keefe. And I know more here personally than is publicly available because 
I am good friends with a former guest on this program, uh, Matthew Tiermond. Uh, if, if the listeners will recall, we had Matthew Tiermond on primarily to discuss the recent contested election in Brazil, for which he appeared on Tucker Carlson's show four times over like a five or six week stretch or so. He was probably the single most important American political commentator on that particular issue, coming at it from a national conservative, national populist, pro-Bolsonaro perspective there. He did amazing work on that issue. And Matthew Tiermond is on the board of Project Veritas. And the stuff that people are saying on Twitter about him for being kind of the ringleader of an attempted coup, so to speak, against James O'Keefe, because as the news broke, as New York Magazine leaked last week, James O'Keefe is on suspended uh, he, he, he's on paid leave. He, is, he, he has been suspended from his roles with Project Veritas, um, an organization, the future of which is now currently in doubt because of the bitter nature of this, of the, of this intra-internal dispute. I just want to, again, I know more privately than I am permitted to say publicly, but here is what I want to say on this. I have two very quick things to say. One is, if you don't know the full story and you are a blue check with a massive platform or you have a prominent show or a podcast, if you are only hearing one side of the story and you just simply do not know the full information, then you probably should be a little more humble and a little more reluctant to weigh in with a scalding, raging hot take that is taking one side and trying to throw the other side of an internal squabble like this with very limited information. The second and related point is that in a situation like this, where you have two card-carrying conservatives, two people that have bled for the movement for years and years, I'm talking here about James O'Keefe and previous Josh Hammer Show guest Matthew Tiermont, who again is only one of the board members for Project Veritas, but has emerged as, at least on Twitter as kind of the public face of it because he's the only one with kind of a blue check uh, public-facing presence. So when you have two people like this, who have done a ton for the movement, including, again, in the case of Tiermond, as recently as his phenomenal efforts to prevent a legitimately stolen election and all sorts of judicial shenanigans down in Brazil. Again, Tucker Carlson was so peaked that he had him on his show four times over a five-week stretch. When you have two people like this, maybe just cool it down with the blistering hot takes. Maybe this thing actually is really nuanced and actually a lot, lot more complicated than the incredibly one-sided narrative that all too many people, all too many people in classic groupthink ganging up fashion are currently spewing from their Twitter keyboards. So that is all we have to say on this subject for now. We're going to take it to a quick commercial break here. We'll be joined momentarily by Ron Coleman. Please do stay with us. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So, 
So we are just thrilled this week to bring on a genuinely long overdue guest. That is a great mensch. That is Ron Coleman. Ron is a partner at the Dylan Law Group. He is the host of the Culmination podcast. You can chat that out wherever you get your podcast. I have been honored to be a guest on that show at least a couple times in, in recent memory. And, you know, Ron and I are both on the board of advisors for Gavin Wax's New York Young Republicans Club as well. You can really find him all over social media. He's a prolific tweeter and Instagram poster. So, Ron, this is long overdue, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Well, it's a real pleasure to, to talk with you. The good thing about coming on whenever I come on is that there's always something interesting, often something awful to, for us to talk about. So we're not going to ever be overdue. No, there's never there's never a dearth of topics to talk about. And, you know, speaking of what's timely and what's kind of in the news, or at least what has been in the news in the not so distant past, you know, I mentioned that you were a partner at the Dillon Law Group. And that, of course, means that one of your partners, Harmie Dillon, uh, who's very active, of course, on social media, is, is a prolific attorney, is all over Fox News. She just m- mounted a, a bid to supplant Ronna McDaniel as the RNC chair, uh, putting my own personal cards on the table. I was very much supporting her in, in, in that bid, but she came up a bit short there. I, I'm curious what you think in the aftermath of that, what your kind of takeaways are. You obviously are, are a partisan in this intra-partisan squabble, but uh, what do you think about uh, about the fact that McDaniel was, was able to win there at the RNC, and what does it say about the state of the RNC? It's, what it says about the state of the RNC is that absent significant change, which I will tell you in a second, may very well be in the offing, and it may very well be coming from Ron McDaniel, it is still as they say in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, they, they didn't, I didn't make him for you. The RNC is not meant to serve Republicans. It's meant to serve a particular category of Republican. You could call them leaders. You could call them elite. You could call them power brokers. And that's true of any political committee. Um, Republicans, unlike Democrats, do from time to time fall into the error of thinking that they that, that the grassroots might be entitled to some sort of influence over policy and over the way things are done. Um, and what we learned in this election was, no, not so much. On the other hand, as you as you observed, and as everyone knows by now, she didn't win. She and she came up quite a bit shorter than a lot of us would have liked to have seen. And yet those 40 votes evidently, and the parallel to the McCarthy um, speaker election was not lost on anyone, I think. Um, those 40 votes apparently put a certain amount of fear of God into Rana, uh, who is giving Harmeet, who I think did not necessarily expect to stay involved uh, after challenging Rana and challenging her, shall we say, aggressively. They realize, I think both Rana and Harmeet, as well as those of us who are watching, that it is beneficial to both of them and to the party for them to work together. Uh, So Rana is giving Harmeet a certain amount of space and a certain amount, not just space, but a certain amount of resources and opportunities and a voice that she wouldn't have had otherwise. So in some respects, just as we saw Kevin McCarthy winning despite the multiple challenges, but definitely seeming to have gotten a message, seemed to have gotten an understanding that he cannot take his position for granted. I think Rana understands that as well. And 
listen, if indeed her people, the people who voted for her, despite the multiple failures of the party under her leadership to do what they ought to have done uh, in, in the last few elections, what Rana definitely does have is a superb network of committed people who are committed to her. And if she can get them to do things that are um, informed by the experience, and especially the legal and election law uh, experience of, of a Harmi Dillon, maybe the Republican Party wins. I'll be honest with you, that's actually a really more optimistic take than I was expecting from you, which is a good thing. I mean, there's no reason why we should be overly pessimistic or overly negative there. To kind of give, I guess, the flip side of that, so Charlie Kirk, who's a, who's a columnist for us at Newsweek, he was a very outspoken supporter of Hard Meats, and he has been just exceedingly critical of the RNC's vote here. And in his op-ed that he wrote for Newsweek that the listeners can go ahead and find in Newsweek's op-ed section, he basically said that he could not, in good faith, tell Turning Point USA supporters, tell his followers to continue to donate, to continue to support the RNC. And, you know, a similar sentiment, I think, has been expressed by another previous guest on this show, my good friend Raheem Kassam, who has just utterly excoriated what Raheem, I think, quite eloquently calls the McLeadership, where he's talking there about Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, and Ronald McDaniel. It's a very kind of colorful description. But I guess you're more optimistic. Keeping keeping in mind that Raheem also excoriated Harmeet. Okay, Uh, you know, before before the election, as far as he was concerned, she was a tool of the RNC. And I I didn't listen to to your conversation with him. But there are people in our neighborhood, you might say, who will believe that Harmeet, by virtue of merely challenging, but not leaving, only demonstrated that she's part of of a a psyop part that she's what they call controlled opposition, which is BS. That's I mean, I. Believe me, she wanted to win. She put a lot of personal resources into it, a lot of blood, sweat and tears, a lot of time away from the law firm. And I think everything that Charlie says is legitimate. I don't I don't think there's my optimism is based on what Harmeet has told us partners in the firm about what's going on in the RNC. Fair enough. Um, on the other hand, standing from the outside, why indeed should anyone trust the Republican National Committee, uh, uh, especially when you can donate to the candidate of your choice anyway. I mean, what I do find to be a a non-position is the one that says, and people tend to, we just saw it with James O'Keefe last week. I'm now dropping all my support for Project Veritas. Can you just wait a second and find out what what the story is? I mean, I'm friends with James. My presumptive loyalties are with James, but the drama, the the black, everything's not black and white. And especially, I don't have to tell you, politics is the art of compromise. Yep. You, you got to realize, yes, people I think should be very skeptical of the RNC as a, you know, as an organization. Let the RNC demonstrate that it's made that it's made changes. And then you can look at it differently. As of right now, there is no reason. There's no reason to look at it differently except. That Ron Coleman had a you know had had a good um, Zoom call uh, with Harmeet after the election. That that's in and of itself is a very small point to put on the scale. No, totally fair. And I I had actually completely I'll be very candid. I had forgotten Raheem's um, 
excoriating a Substack post about Harmeet before the RNC election. I had I read it and had genuinely forgotten about that. So you know, point point there certainly well taken. Um, you know, and you mentioned, of course, the James O'Keefe Project Veritas drama, which we touched upon in our opening monologue today. There's a lot to unpack there. Maybe we'll get to it again towards the end of our conversation here. But Ron, because we're, you know, uh, in this particular podcast setting, just always a little pressed on time, I want to move on to a, to, to a more kind of substantive topic and kind of less kind of intra kind of uh, conservative media, intra RNC swapping. Yeah, exactly. Let's get out of the inside baseball weeds. And there is one substantive issue that we did touch upon this show recently. I've, be, I've been quite increasingly outspoken myself on this issue. I actually have an upcoming event here in South Florida with another Newsweek opinion contributor, Alan Dershowitz, on this very issue. And this is the issue of judicial reform in Israel. Now, this is obviously an American podcast for a primarily American audience. So I think a lot of folks listening to this will say, you know, why should I care about kind of a, a constitutional or separation of powers dispute happening in a small country halfway around the world? To which I respond, well, there's a lot of reasons why you should care, because there's actually shocking parallels between the debate that is happening over there and what is happening presently in the U.S. when it comes to the deep state in particular. You can name the country, honestly, Hungary, Brazil. But um, I want to let you talk about this because you obviously are a a practicing lawyer and a religious Jew. So you are very informed on these topics. So why should Americans care, frankly, about what is happening, as I also agree that they should care in the Israeli judicial reform debate? Israel has many of the same fault lines running along its uh, constitutional and political and legal axes. Terrible mixed metaphor there. Um, but they have a lot of the same problems that we do. Uh, they don't have a written constitution, but then again, we hardly have one anyway. In both countries, there has developed a very, very strong culture. Uh, and in the United States, it developed during the New Deal in Israel, it developed almost immediately after the founding of the state in 1948, um, and probably was influenced by American by American judicial trends, which was that the, the, the was that there was essentially no limit to the concept of judicial review. Now, in the United States, judicial review is not utterly uncontroversial, but it is we're pretty much stuck with it. It's the law of the land. It's been the law of the land for a very very long time. I don't know, frankly, what we would do without it, but there is at least a constitutional mechanism by which the legislatures, the genuine democratic representative branches of government can overrule the judiciary. Israel has never had a written constitution to some extent because that would require it to come to terms with why it exists, which is probably an existential impossibility. Um, But that has meant that the judiciary there has had unlimited power. There is no such thing as a constitutional amendment, or at least there hasn't been until now. And what is being contemplated now by the conservative coalition ruling the Knesset is to pass a law which by its terms would not be amenable to judicial review and which would state that there will be certain kinds of legislation that are not that, that are going to be on a sort of a higher level that the Israeli Supreme Court can't merely make an, uh, an unmake law to the extent that they've done so for for so very, very long. And what has resulted has been a sort of left wing spasm of violence, both rhetorical and actual 
that of the nature that we saw around all kinds of of, of undesired political and and ju- even judicial um, occurrences from the perspective of the left in this country. So that's the parallel, and it, and it's fascinating to see how the left deals with threats to its monopoly on non-representative institutions. So I think to dumb it down for the non-lawyers here, basically what, you know, under Marbury versus Madison, the landmark Chief Justice John Marshall, 1803 case, the way that judicial review functions in America's separation of power context is that for a statute or executive branch regulation to be quote unquote struck down, and I put that in scare quotes deliberately because my good friend Jonathan Mitchell has a wonderful law review article called The Writ of Erasure Fallacy that the law nerds out there really ought to check out explaining why judges don't actually have the power to quote unquote strike down legislation, but hold that aside for now. That what So, so, so uh, going back there, so when a federal judge in the U.S. constitutional system quote unquote strikes down a piece of legislation on constitutional grounds, they're pointing to a very specific constitutional clause, whether it's the Commerce Clause or some other provision vision in the Constitution. But because Israel does not have a written Constitution, they have these so-called basic laws that are accorded quasi-constitutional status is usually how the legal commentary refers to them. It ends up just being a totally freewheeling exercise where the judges there can strike down and actually strike down, not quote unquote strike down, and can actually strike down laws because it is quote, extremely unreasonable or it offends the delicate sensibilities of the primarily kind of secular Tel Aviv elite who disproportionately comprise the, the particular Supreme court there. But I think the bigger takeaway, which is the point that I think you properly were building up to there, Ron, is that there are just striking parallels, again, between kind of what is happening there with kind of this secular kind of left-leaning institution trying to override the kind of primarily kind of right-leaning kind of will of the people, uh, kind of the silent majority. And it's basically exactly what happened here under President Trump, isn't it? I mean, it's exactly kind of time and time again when you saw kind of deep state actors, the intelligence community probably more so than anyone else trying to just overturn the democratically expressed will of the people. I mean, is, is that kind of a very neat and easy parallel to draw there? I think it is. And I, and I think, frankly, that that familiarity with Israeli history, political history, demonstrates that they have honed their deep state um, in ways that I believe the Democrats took note of and learned much, much later than they perfected in, in Israel. For example, in, in, in Israel, they have a very, very longstanding um, practice of criminalizing political Dissent. I'm not talking about Mayor Kahana, which is a separate topic, although not entirely unrelated. But Shimon Peres, who was assassinated and 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 became lionized as this as this dove, had previously been known as a hawk. He came out of he was an Israeli military war hero and was elected. He he was a hawkish um, labor. Labor, right back when the Labor Party was the dominant party in, in, in American, uh, I'm sorry, in Israeli history, and he was removed from office because his wife had a an American bank account with like three hundred dollars in it. That's how they got rid of an opposition leader in, in his first term as prime minister, and this goes back to the, this process of criminalizing undesired un- political figures uh, goes back to the 50s. 
and there's a there's a great story about the, 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 the there was a member of the Israeli Knesset named Shlomo Lorenz who passed away in 2009 and about how he had been indicted in connection with an allegation of, of unauthorized money money changing or something in other words currency currency and they asked and the Israeli um, police or the you know the Shin Bet the, the FBI or the prosecutors asked him to voluntarily withdraw his parliamentary immunities just so we can do an investigation. And he went to the great sage, uh, uh, one of the great sages of, uh, among the rabbinical leadership that he obviously worked for in the 1950s, uh, the, the Briskorov Rabbi uh, Soloveitchik, who explained to him, you absolutely can't do this. You got You don't understand how this works. It's, once they do this to you that you're going to be that you're going to be. And he gave him step by step instructions about how to withstand this. And he ended up remaining in, in, in the Knesset for decades after. But this was never this was done. to This is what was done to Nixon. Right. And this was what was done to 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 on lower levels of just about every Republican uh, politician of, of any stature. And with Trump, it was pulled on. It was, it was used Full. So you and what happens is you've got law enforcement, which ends up getting captured by the left. I don't really quite understand how that happens. And I don't know if, if you and I can figure it out in the next 15 minutes, but it's something that happens. Probably what law enforcement likes is stuff to do and heads to display. And if the judiciary is going to work with them and, you know, imagine we have a district, a federal judicial district in the United States called the District of the District of Columbia which is a place in which no Republican can ever be acquitted and no Democrat can ever be convicted of anything, of anything. That's what all Israeli courts are like. It, it, you know, it, it is an extreme. So what they did was they, they had been investigating uh, Benjamin Netanyahu for, offense. I mean, you, real, you, you remember the big offense that he was accused of during his previous um, a time in office as prime minister was agreeing to he had accepted donations from a media company supposedly in exchange for do you remember exactly what it was josh it was it was yeah, really it, preposterous. i think it was taking like or allegedly taking cigars in from some media figure in exchange for favorable coverage or at least that was the allegation i mean but, but, but it was it was really weak sauce i mean Absolutely. I mean, stuff that just would never be brought against the left. Right. Exactly. And the judiciary stands atop this all. And there has, you know, and and yes, yeah, so, so that's something that's really and the result has been there has been this because they don't have the votes in parliament. What's right. the playbook? And I think to this, they look to the U.S. I think this is now right. a switching of roles. What's the playbook you take to the streets? You start burning cars. You start saying we need to, you know, let's slow this down. This is obviously not good for society. This is unhealthy. This is undemocratic. Wait a minute. Democratic. We got the votes that I thought that was the definition of democratic. Right. right. And the parallels just to kind of drive this point home. Then we'll take it to a quick commercial break here. But the parallels between Prime Minister Netanyahu and former President Trump, I find just personally striking. I mean, you kind of have this, this entire kind of deep state prosecutorial apparatus, the attorney general's office, the FBI that are in the U.S., obviously, that are just coming after the leader with all these kind of fabricated charges that in never in a million years they would have ever applied towards the, towards the other side. The media, obviously, is totally arrayed in both countries against these leaders. So 
and then obviously, you know, Netanyahu and Trump are, of course, simpatico. They are, they are of like mind on many of the pressing issues of the day. Of course, they were able to kind of work hand in hand to, to achieve the Abraham Accords piece. So the parallels are really striking there. But let's go ahead and, and take it to that quick commercial break. I want to continue this conversation on the other side with the great Ron Coleman. Hope you'll stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Judicial reform, which is kind of the name that the Western media uses for this broader project that the Netanyahu government has been pushing and is likely, in my estimation, to successfully push here across the next few weeks, has, has been a goal of many in Israel for, for decades. Uh, Moshe Koppel, who's the head of, of the Kohelet Policy Forum, has kind of been one of the leading intellects there, pushing back against the so-called constitutional revolution from then-Israeli Supreme Court Chief Justice Aaron Barak, who was really kind of just a an enlightened despot, I think, was how uh, the uh, Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit infamously referred <laughs> to Chief Justice Aaron Barak. But from a kind of 35,000 foot altitude perspective, the key here is that this push to regain sovereignty, to regain this kind of democratic control of institutions, I think has been a key theme of what t- today we might call kind of national conservatism, national populism. You know, I think it is I think it is no accident, honestly, that a lot of these trends kind of uh, have their provenance, frankly, in Israel, where another former guest on this show, Yoram Hazoni, is one of the leading intellects of kind of the national conservative movement. And at least, Ron, as I see that movement, one of the key tenets is to reclaim in quasi-populist fashion just control over our own political destiny, over our own political community from what some will call the ruling class, what some will call elites, the, the unelected bureaucracy, the the juristocracy, the judges. Is that how you see kind of this great battle of our time kind of playing out? And, are, or, and then I guess uh, the, the corollary is, do you think that that is a good basis for the American right to have as its kind of current political moment in its movement? I think, I, I think you're, you're onto something there. I mean, as, as you were as you were forming the question, my mind was instantly awash with images of, of Menachem Begin and the shock to the to the system. Israel had been run entirely by the Labor Party, uh, you know, through from its founding through the 70s until the election of Begin, not just in terms of majorities in the Knesset, but in terms of every institution. And Begin, in many ways, you know, again, before you get on to Bibi, Begin was much, was very much like Trump in many respects, in that he appealed to a coalition of disaffected people who said, let's remember what 
what being our nation is about, that there's such a thing as our nation, that, that although we believe in the brotherhood of man, although we believe in comity among nations, we're Americans first, we're Israelis first. Now, for Israelis, that's an immensely more complicated formulation. But for Americans, what Donald Trump had the audacity to do and what national conservatives today, and I'm not necessarily saying that Donald Trump is the mascot of national conservatism, but is say, there's such a thing as America, and there's such a thing as acknowledging American interests and American nationalism, not as a negation of the nationalism of others, but rather as taking a place alongside every nationalism in the world and saying it's okay to, to be um, the last best hope of mankind and to recognize that being that means being America in, and being America in the way that America is America, not in being all things to all people. It can't be. I, I mean, to me, it's just such common sense, right? I mean, I think back to this famous, uh, I think it was a speech or, or an essay, I guess it was probably a speech that John Quincy Adams famously gave when he was then Secretary of State, if I'm not mistaken, to President James Monroe. I think the year was 1821. This is one of the famous uh, writings from the late great Angelo Cotavilla, the great Claire Monster, who we lost in 2021, tragically, in a car accident. And in this speech, John Quincy Adams, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have it memorized verbatim, but he basically says, you know, America will be the, the well-wisher for liberty unto the world. But, and here's the key part, he says, quote, but she will be the guarantor only for her own people. And that, that distinction, I mean, I, I think that distinction kind of says all you need to know about the various kind of fault lines that kind of existed in kind of right of center America when you had kind of the rise of kind of Bush era neoconservatism and in my opinion, kind of the follies, um, at least in retrospect, that are, that are obvious and kind of this idea of, of, of spreading kind of particular American ideals, even if we would prefer those ideals to be, to be universalist. So if I, if I can interrupt, of course. part of being America and I think it's, it's, it's cooked into a manifest destiny and it finds voice in the Monroe Doctrine, okay, is that part of being America is being a hegemon. <laughs> you can't really. And, and why? Because when you're the good guy, if you don't build a picket fence of protection around yourself in an assertive way, and I'm not, I'm not saying therefore overthrow every South American government, you know, that, that looks at you funny. OK, but if you if you're if you if you're not proactive about your freedom and about things that affect your freedom, you're going to be more vulnerable than those countries that are not as idealistic as as you. What that results, though, and the prop, what's the problem that, that you end up with then is that as as Eisenhower, who had his hands in both sides of this was quick to, to remind us is that you build up these institutions like the CIA and the military industrial complex in order to protect your liberty and your borders and say, listen, I just, all I really want is to let America be guarantor of its own, of itself. They take on a life of their own. And what you and I never dreamt we would be both acknowledging as conservatives five years ago is how out of control these institutions that we and Donald Trump and many others like us thought were natural, ideological, and cultural and institutional allies of the values that we espouse, the military, the intelligence community, and they've right. become actually our affirmative enemies. Yes. 
Yes. No, that's exactly right. I, I mean, how can one, and I say this as a devout American patriot, I literally have my constitution on my desk. I could elaborate if need be. But I mean, how could anyone have faith in, in the United States military right now when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, at this point is better known for his exhortations against so-called white rage and his kind of assigning of various lists of Ibram X. Kendi inspired books for, you know, for active service members to read. I mean, I mean, I, and his acknowledgement of multiple instances in which he misled, disobeyed or failed to inform the commander in chief. That's right. Based on his political judgments and not a peep, not a peep from Congress. So this is a, a, a this is a constitutional crisis that, that also has to be dealt with. I mean, look, from a constitutional law perspective, you know, from one lawyer to another here, I mean, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of people on the left refer to so-called unitary executive theory as some sort of kind of right wing fringe theory. You know, this term kind of gained prominence during the Bush era, I think, in the popular imagination. It is associated with some Bush era legal figures, you know, fo- folks like Jack Goldsmith and, and, and John Yu. But so-called unitary executive theory, Ron, as as you know, as a good lawyer. It is literally just the text of what Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution says, which is executive power is vested in a president of the United States. So one person has the executive power. You know, the vice president doesn't have the executive power. The cabinets don't have cabinet members don't have executive power, let alone deep state underlings. The, the executive power is vested in one person only. So when you mean the interagency isn't one of the branches of government? Yeah, right. Exactly. Remember when he when when he said that? And well, the inter the the interagency, and and where was the reaction? Where was the reaction? It was practically non-existent. Gigantic problem. Yeah, I mean, I get that they don't necessarily show those old kind of schoolhouse rocks videos or schoolhouse rocks videos that at least I grew up on that kind of old grainy kind of uh, cartoon there. Uh, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. But, you know, at least I thinking back to those videos that I watch in civics class in middle school, whatever. I don't remember the deep state or, or, or the interagency <laughs> or or any of this being kind of an enumerated branch of governance. Um, absolutely just cartoonish stuff there. But speaking of kind of the legal stuff, if if I may, maybe this is maybe this is actually a, a, a solid topic for us to kind of close close the show on here. You know, uh, I, I don't normally kind of talk about this kind of aspect of, of my work on this show because I, I, I kind of keep my kind of my my legal theory stuff kind of aside. I, I, I try to keep the show a little more kind of tethered to kind of a political commentary, but you're really the perfect guest to kind of nerd out a little on. So I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that at this, if, if it's OK. So I, I do a lot of talks at law schools and for lawyers chapters. Just this past week, actually, I was on the road in Illinois. I I did four presentations, one in Champaign, Illinois, at the University of Illinois, and then three in Chicago. And most of these talks that I do is kind of an approach to constitutional interpretation that I have called common good originalism. It's a term that I coined, but uh, I I think I argue that it's kind kind of channeling an older concept. It is distinct, I should note, from Harvard Law School professor's own proposal for common good constitutionalism. Uh, professor Vermeule and I are friendly, but these proposals are, are, are distinct. They are not identical. To, to, to kind of make it a little simpler for, for the audience here, I guess I would just be curious for you, as a practicing attorney and as a card-carrying member of the vast right-wing conspiracy, as Hillary Clinton would say it, um, do you view this kind of intellectual ferment on the jurisprudential right with, with favor, or, or are, are you kind of skeptical of, of kind of any tinkering with kind of the, the judicial status quo ante? Where do you kind of come down on kind of the, just the broader confines of these debates, I guess? I think on the broader issue, I think there, I, I mean, one thing's for sure is that the incrementalism and the, uh, the the obsession with procedural with procedure in general of the 
Roberts Court has been a disaster for conservatism and to a large extent to the to the judicial inquiry. I mean, to the to the to the judicial enterprise as a whole. Important questions that should have been adjudicated over the last five years have been tucked away for for procedural reasons, either justified or otherwise. And although that's not a direct contradiction to common good originalism, um, it it is part of the story because what I understand you're positing is a, a jurisprudence that that sort of is a rebirth of of the courts of of, of, of of the impetus that gave birth to the courts of equity, which is what are we doing here? What's actually going to happen if we proceed with strictly interpreting this statute? So in the, in the way that, say, Neil Gorsuch does, it says, well, it says sex. Well, it says sex. So that must include transsexuals. Forget about originalism as in there's no way the, that the people who wrote that statute ever dreamt that that's what that means. But how about what's going on here? Do you have, doesn't it matter to you what the effect of your ruling is, given that you're making, the, in other words, listen, one, one thing I'll always give credit to uh, Justice Sotomayor for, for is, is, is saying this quiet part out loud during her, during, during her, her nomination uh, hearings, which was justices of the Supreme Court make policy. And so do courts of appeals. And to a large extent, and, and, and especially given how few cases are actually reviewed by the Supreme Court. So when the Supreme Court declines to make decisions, it gives a lot of leeway to a lot of judges to make this to make policy, uh, you know, at a lower level. And what they're doing is they're making decisions, you know, again, s- s- saying saying that interpreting things in, in, in this sort of hyper hyper literalistic and a, a sort of an originalism devoid of real world connection is a real problem. I mean, you, but but let's now connect the beginning of our conversation with 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 what we both agree is going to be the end. What we said about judicial reform. So the justices of the of the Israel of the Israeli Supreme Court and people like ju- just ju- you know, the former Justice Breyer who were arguing during the OSHA uh, a challenge uh, on on the COVID vaccine, saying, "But it's an emergency, right? But it's an emergency." In other words, let's just forget the Constitution. Let's just talk about some common sense here, right? And in Israel, the same. But listen, there's no Constitution. Let's. What do we, as as men of good conscience, think is the right thing to do? So the challenge is how do common how does common good originalism separate itself from that? Well, listen, I'm an elite. I'm a better. I'm better educated. I know what's good. And, and I suppose that the answer to that is you need and I, and, and this is what I've understand both from you and and from Professor Vermeule, even though you are you guys have are not coming from exactly from the same spaces. You need to look at how we got here. What is it we are trying to protect? What is it we're trying to maintain? Now that is potentially a slippery slope because you know how 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 a lot of my work has been in the First Amendment area, and you have people, you know, when um, what's his name, um, the guy who who left uh, Twitter, um, uh, Yoel Roth, no, Yoel Roth yeah. testifying last week that well, you know, too much too much free speech results in less speech. Okay, and we, and and any, everyone mocked him, but he did, a he didn't make that up, and b there is a certain logic. In other words, you can make the, you can, there's a, there's a decision tree. There's a dominoes by which you can understand how that happens. So 
Josh, you tell me, how does the common good jurist escape the problem of merely being the wise man who, who knows better? So you raise a lot of really, really good points. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we'll probably have to finish unpacking this perhaps in a, in a future episode where we'll get you back on the show. But I, I just want to highlight for the listeners that one thing that that I think you said over and over again there, which I could not more strongly agree with, it's just this broader sense. And this is exactly, exactly what I am trying to do with my whole common good originalism thesis and good for you for picking up on it so, so easily, is trying to just remind people that these are not naked words on the page utterly devoid from context. They they do have a context. They have what Aristotle, again, if I'm just nerding out here, Aristotle called this the telos. This was, they have a substantive overarching orientation towards something. I argue that is found in the Declaration and primarily actually the preamble of the Constitution, where they literally tell you the ends of governance there. Uh, Sir William Blackstone, the great English common lawyer, he referred to this using the Latin name. He said it was the ratio, ratio legis, the reason of the law, why the re, why the law exists in the first place there. And surely, I guess I argue that at least in closely contested questions of legal interpretation, this ought to kind of put a thumb on the scale at a bare, bare minimum there. But um you know, Ron, uh, so much that we really could kind of go deep on with you. You're a, you're a great intellect. You're a wonderful man and a, and, a, and a humorous tweeter, among other things. Please do go ahead and follow Ron on Twitter. So, Ron Coleman, until next time, my friend, thank you so much. This was a real treat for me. Thank you for joining a us. real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I love, I love chatting with you. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So thanks again to the great Ron Coleman. Ron is one of my favorite happy warriors in the conservative movement. Again, please do go ahead and follow him on Twitter if you are not already doing so. I promise that you are in for a treat. You know, I want to just highlight my somewhat surprised uh, and I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised at how optimistic Ron sounded about the future of the RNC going back to the very beginning of our conversation, because obviously his law his law firm partner is Harmeet Dillon, who just had this fairly crushing defeat, not saying the fact that I and a number of others were rooting for her to dethrone Ronna McDaniel. But if one of kind of the most public facing partners at Harmeet Dillon's law firm, and that is Ron Coleman, is sounding optimistic about uh, whether Ronna McDaniel is going to possibly kind of devolve more power or run the RNC in a slightly different fashion, that is some serious cause for optimism. And it's, it's interesting because I did mention that Charlie Kirk had this op-ed for us in Newsweek Opinion that was just utterly, utterly excoriating the RNC. He was really kind of pulling no punches, just straight up telling donors not to donate money. So interesting to hear that from Ron himself there. One other thing that, that we talked about there was, of course, this extended conversation about the judicial reform debate that is happening over in Israel. I do want to flag on a somewhat kind of shameless self-promotional note for the listeners of this program that I am doing an event with the great Alan Dershowitz on this very topic. It'll be live and in person on Tuesday evening, February 28th at Temple Emanuel. That is a, that is a very large shul in Miami Beach, Florida. It will be live streamed. It will be live streamed 
on the synagogue's website. We will give you the information for that when it gets a little closer, so you can go ahead and tune in there. But Alan Dershowitz, um, you know, Alan and I have become friendly over the past few years we've, since we've published a lot of his op-eds and Newsweek Opinion. That is going to be a real, real treat for me. And, you know, on a, on a, on a very kind of personal note he, here, my 93 and a half year old uh, Jewish grandmother back in New York, who I think has been a great admirer of Professor Dershowitz's for many, many decades. You know, I think uh, to use the Yiddish word here, because it's been an overly Jewish podcast episode as it is to use, but to use the Yiddish word, my grandma will get some serious nachas, some some pride out of that particular event. So, um, you know, if you're interested in what Ron and I were discussing about the Israeli judicial reform issue, please go ahead and tune in to that. Again, that's going to be Tuesday, February 28th. We will give you more details when it gets closer. But until next time, I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging and somewhat eclectic conversation with Ron Coleman. We will see you next week. Thanks again for tuning in. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. She's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts. One. Two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.